On October 31st, 1517, a German theology professor named Martin Luther posted a letter on the door of the Wittenberg University Chapel. In this letter, Luther argued that the church in his day had gone badly astray. For a few hundred years, church leaders had been in the practice of selling indulgences, paper certificates guaranteeing time off from punishment in purgatory. Luther worried that many people were using these indulgences as a shortcut around repentance. He argued that the job of church leaders wasn't to invent new ways of forgiving sins, but to proclaim God's forgiveness of sins through Jesus Christ to all who repent. Instead of giving people false hope, the church needed to remember the one basis for true hope, the cross of Jesus Christ. The publication of that letter, 503 years ago this week, was one of the early events in the Protestant Reformation, a long period in which men and women rediscovered parts of the Bible's message that had been neglected or forgotten and challenged the church to change some of its long habits and settled ideas. For about a century and a half after the publication of Luther's letter, huge changes rocked the whole church, changes in what people believed, changes in what people did when they gathered together on Sunday mornings, changes in how people lived and worked together with each other all week. And surprise, not everybody could agree about whether these changes were good or bad. Some people thought Luther had gone too far, others that he hadn't gone far enough. Some people thought that the Holy Spirit was, in work, was at work in these reform movements, bringing his church back to a more faithful understanding of God and a more faithful walk with Jesus. But others thought it was the devil who was behind all these changes, that the reformers were teaching dangerous heresies and so on. And though five hundred years have passed, things aren't so different today, are they? There are still movements for change in the church. People saying, we've been wrong about this issue, or we've got this part of our doctrine wrong. There are always proposals for reforming the church in various ways, but it's not always easy to tell which of these proposals please God. It's not always easy to tell what kind of reformation the Lord really wants for his church. What kind of reformation does the Lord want? That will be our big question today as we look at 2 Kings chapter 22 and the first part of 23. Uh, the story of a religious reformation that took place not 500 years ago in Christian Europe, but 2,500 years ago in the ancient kingdom of Judah. So please open your Bibles there. Second Kings chapter 22. Boy, did God's people need a reformation in Josiah's day. Over the last couple of centuries, Judah had fallen deeper and deeper into idolatry, the worship of false gods. They still worshipped the Lord, sort of, but they worshipped him alongside a bunch of other gods that they had imported from the nations around them. So they no longer knew the Lord as the one true God who had created the world, who had saved them from Egypt, and who had called them to live a new life of holiness. 
And when they stopped seeing the Lord as the one true God, they also stopped seeing his commandments as the one way for righteous living. So as they became more and more idolatrous, they also became more and more corrupt, selfish, and unloving towards one another. And the kings of Judah, the descendants of David, were usually the worst offenders. Every once in a while, there was a good king who would try to restore the worship of the Lord and get rid of the idols. But it seemed like for every one of these, there were two or three evil kings who would lead the people further astray. Evil kings like Josiah's grandfather, Manasseh. King Manasseh was an enthusiastic idolater. And as king of Judah, he tried to make some big changes to the Jewish religion. He rebuilt all the old pagan places of worship that were scattered throughout the country. And he decided to make some changes to the temple in Jerusalem, to the house of the Lord itself. He brought in an altar to the god Baal. And he brought in a carved image of the goddess Asherah. He got into astrology and consulted psychics. He even had one of his sons burned alive as a sacrifice to the god Molech. For 55 years, this evil king, Manasseh, led the people of God into all sorts of foolishness and wickedness. 2 Kings 21 verse 16 says, He made Judah to sin, so that they did what was evil in the eyes of the Lord. Then came Manasseh's son, Ammon. Chapter 21, verses 20 to 21, say that he did what was evil in the eyes of the Lord, as Manasseh, his father, had done. He walked in all the way in which his father walked and served the idols that his father served. While just two years into his reign, Ammon was assassinated by his servants. And after a bit of a kerfuffle, people put Ammon's eight-year-old son, Josiah, on the throne. If you're reading through 2 Kings, it's a relief after reading about Manasseh and Ammon, to come to, to come to the description of Josiah in chapter 22, verse 2. He did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, and walked in all the way of David, his father. And he did not turn aside to the right or to the left. Josiah would be one of those all-too-rare good kings. In fact, he would be one of the great reforming kings of Judah where Manasseh and Ammon had corrupted Jewish religion and led the people astray, Josiah would try to restore Jewish religion and lead the people back to the Lord. Second Chronicles chapter 34 tells us that Josiah, while he was yet a boy, began to seek the God of David, his father. But the first, four, the first story Second Kings tells us about him takes place in the 18th year of his reign, when Josiah would have been about 26 years old. And at this time, he undertook a renovation of the house of the Lord, that is the temple. He ordered the high priest to count the money that had been collecting in the temple donation box and distribute it to the carpenters, masons, and other builders that they might repair the house. With all the crazy things Manasseh and Ammon had been doing in the temple, and all the other pagan places of worship they had been patronizing instead, it's not hard to imagine that the temple of the Lord might have been getting a bit run down, might have needed some repair. 
Josiah's order that the workmen be paid to start repairs of the temple was a good move, no doubt a sign of his love for God, but it's not the focus of our passage. The central event in our passage is something that happened seemingly by accident while the workers and the priests were getting started on the renovations. Something that happened by accident, but launched a different kind of repair or restoration that was much more important. Verse 8, Hilkiah the high priest said to Shaphan the secretary, I have found the book of the law in the house of the Lord. The book of the law is a name for the first five books of our Old Testament. The books we call Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And in the period when this story takes place, the rest of the Old Testament was still being written. And it wasn't for a while yet that it would be collected and recognized as scripture. And of course, the books of the New Testament wouldn't be written for another long time after that. So in Josiah's day, the book of the law was the whole of scripture. And evidently, the book of the law had been lost for some time. Until Hilkiah stumbled upon it during the temple renovation. It doesn't seem like it was deliberately hidden, just neglected, forgotten. Some people have a Bible on their shelf at home. Maybe it's even a beautifully bound copy of the Bible, sitting in a place of honor on the mantle above the fireplace in the living room or at the top of the bookcase in its own special section. But they never take it down and open it up and read it. It just sits there on the shelf. Well, it seems like Judah was doing the same thing on a national level. They had a copy of God's law, but they never opened it up and read it. They forgot all about it in time. It was like it wasn't even there. But the priest Hilkiah finds the book and gives it to Shaphan, the king's secretary. Maybe it will be of interest to the king. Shaphan reads it and brings it along with him when he goes to make a report on the temple renovations. And as an afterthought, Shaphan reads the book to King Josiah in verse 10. And verse 11, when the king heard the words of the book of the law, he tore his clothes. <coughs> in the Bible, tearing one's clothes is a sign of intense grief. What Josiah hears in the words of the book of the law overwhelms him with grief so much that he rips his royal robes apart with his hands. I, I'm looking at all of you now in the gallery view, and I don't think any of you have had that reaction yet today to God's word. So what exactly did Josiah hear in the book of the law that caused him to react this way with this intensity of feeling? Well, Josiah summarizes what he has just heard for us in the second half of verse 13. For great is the wrath of the Lord that is kindled against us, because our fathers have not obeyed the words of this book to do according to all that is written concerning us. Josiah tore his clothes and wept when he heard about the disobedience of his fathers and when he heard about the Lord's great wrath against disobedience. 
Maybe Josiah was especially struck by Deuteronomy chapter 28. It's a long chapter, so we can only just skim through it this morning, but you can read the whole thing on your own later this week. Here's just a taste of Deuteronomy chapter 28. Moses speaking to the people of Israel. If you faithfully obey the voice of the Lord your God, being careful to do all his commandments that I command you today, then all these blessings shall come upon you and overtake you. Blessed shall you be in the city, and blessed shall you be in the field. Blessed shall be the fruit of your womb, and the fruit of your ground, fruit of your cattle. The Lord will cause your enemies who rise against you to be defeated before you. The Lord will open up to you his good treasury, the heavens, to give the rain to your land in its season and to bless all the work of your hands if you obey the commandments of the Lord your God, which I command you today, being careful to do them. And if you do not turn aside from any of the words that I command you today, to the right or to the left, to go after other gods to serve them. But if you will not obey the voice of the Lord your God, or be careful to do all his commandments and his statutes that I command today, then all these curses shall come upon you and overtake you. Cursed shall you be in the city, and cursed shall you be in the field. Cursed shall be the fruit of your womb and the fruit of your ground. The Lord will cause you to be defeated by your enemies. The Lord will bring you and your king whom you set over you to a nation that neither you nor your fathers have known. And there you shall serve other gods of wood and stone. And you shall become a horror, a proverb and a byword among all the people where the Lord will lead you away. When Josiah read this passage, or perhaps some other similar passage of the law, he heard about the Lord's great blessing on faithful obedience and his great wrath against disobedience. Josiah heard how his fathers, his ancestors, had been warned by Moses. Don't turn aside from these words. Don't go after other gods. But he knows that this is exactly what they did. They turned away from God's words. They'd even forgotten about the book of the law. And they went after other gods enthusiastically. So when Josiah hears the blessings and the curses, he knows it's the curses that apply to him and his people. Well, a different king, hearing the words of this book, might have torn up the book instead of tearing his robes. But Josiah took the words to heart. He knew that God's complaint against his people was just, and he knew that God's wrath against disobedience was real. So he tore his clothes, wept, and then called together some of his officials and sent them in verse 13 to inquire of the Lord for me and for the people and for all Judah concerning the words of this book that has been found. Because Josiah understands the gravity of the problem Judah has gotten itself into, he knows that only the Lord can help. He needs to go to the Lord. Josiah's officials inquire of the Lord by inquiring of a woman prophet named Huldah. And the Lord gives Huldah a message for Josiah. Here it is, starting in verse 15. 
And she said to them, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, tell the man who sent you to me, thus says the Lord, behold, I will bring disaster upon this place and upon its inhabitants, all the words of the book that the king of Judah has read. Because they have forsaken me and have made offerings with other gods, that they might provoke me to anger with all the work of their hands, therefore my wrath will be kindled against this place, and it will not be quenched. In other words, the Lord confirms through the prophetess that the curses Josiah has just read about do apply. The Lord will do what he said he would do. His wrath is kindled against the people's disobedience, and it will not be quenched. But, the prophecy continues in verses 18 to 20. But to the king of Judah, who sent you to inquire of the Lord, thus you shall say to him, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, regarding the words that you have heard, because your heart was penitent and you humbled yourself before the Lord when you heard how I spoke against this place and its inhabitants, that they should become a desolation and a curse. And you have torn your clothes and wept before me. I also have heard you, declares the Lord. Therefore, behold, I will gather you to your fathers, and you shall be gathered to your grave in peace. And your eyes shall not see all the disaster that I will bring upon this place. So the Lord will not relent from his wrath against disobedience but he will spare Josiah. Instead of dying under God's wrath, Josiah will die in peace. Now, on one level, dying in peace just means not dying in the disaster. God is here promising Josiah that the disaster won't come until he's already dead for some other reason. Mm -hmm. And God keeps this promise. If you keep reading in 2 Kings, you'll see that the Lord does bring the promised disaster. The Babylonians conquer Judah, destroy the temple, and deport the people. But all of this happens only after Josiah dies. Not long after Josiah dies, just about 20 years. Most of the people alive at the time of Huldah's prophecy will live to see and experience the disaster. They'll suffer in it. But Josiah won't. Well, maybe that's some small comfort if your name is Josiah. But I think the Lord's words to Josiah also carry a deeper and more general comfort. When the Lord promises to gather Josiah to his grave in peace, he's talking, more, he's talking about much more than just the circumstances of Josiah's death, the outward circumstances. Yes, Josiah would be spared the disaster of the Babylonian conquest. But as it happens, the way Josiah gets to die instead is not especially peaceful. At the end of chapter 23, he is killed in battle by the Pharaoh of Egypt. So whatever going to your grave in peace means, it doesn't necessarily mean enjoying a long retirement and then going quietly in your sleep. No, what dying in peace means most centrally is dying at peace with God. Look again at why God makes this special promise to Josiah. Because your heart was penitent when you heard how I spoke 
I also have heard you. Josiah is at peace with God and can die at peace with God, however he dies, because his heart was penitent when he heard how God spoke. Now, the curses are there for those who turn aside from God's words, not for those who hear and listen to God's words. God's wrath is against the persistently disobedient, not against the penitent. If God's people, if any of God's people turn to him with their whole heart, God hears them. He blesses them. He makes peace with them. That peace begins now. It endures in the hour of our death. And when he raises us to new life with him, we will enjoy that peace forever. God's promise to Josiah that he would die before the disaster struck was unique. God didn't make that promise to anyone else in that generation. But that promise was a sign to Josiah's whole generation. A sign that God would still hear their repentance. And that even when the disaster came, they could still find peace. The people of Judah had spent most of the last three centuries chasing other gods. They had so thoroughly neglected their covenant with the Lord that they completely forgot about their copy of the book of the law. God graciously made them his own special people, but they made themselves his enemies. But even now, in spite of all this, God would hear their repentance. And he would still grant them pardon and peace. Judah would still get conquered by Babylon. They would still suffer a national disaster as punishment for their disobedience. But even in the midst of these outward circumstances, it was not too late for them to have peace with their God. If only they would listen to his words and repent from their heart. Remember what the Lord said in Ezekiel chapter 18, verse 23. Have I any pleasure in the death of the wicked, declares the Lord God? Or not rather that he should turn from his way and live? Or what the Lord said in Luke chapter 15, verse 7. I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. That's what God is working for in the events of this story. That's what God is working for all the time today. What God wants, what would give God pleasure and joy, is to bring his whole people back to himself. He wants to reform the life and the worship of his whole people. He wants his whole people to turn away from their idolatry and sin and to turn back to him so that he can be at peace with them. And I think Josiah understands the scope of God's desire here, because when he hears Huldah's prophecy, he doesn't just say, well, I'm glad I'll be spared. Too bad about everyone else. But what can you do? No. He knows that even if God's promise that Josiah will avoid the disaster is unique to him, God's promise that he will hear those who turn to him in repentance is for everyone. So he invites the people to join in his rediscovery of God's law and to join in his repentance and to find peace with God.
Let's read again chapter 23, verses 1 to 3. Then the king sent, and all the elders of Judah and Jerusalem were gathered to him. And the king went up to the house of the Lord, and with him all the men of Judah, and all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and the priests and the prophets, all the people, both small and great. And he read in their hearing all the words of the book of the covenant that had been found in the house of the Lord. And the king stood by the pillar and made a covenant before the Lord to walk after the Lord and keep his commandments and his testimonies and his statutes with all his heart and with all his soul to perform the words of this covenant that were written in this book. And all the people joined in the covenant. What kind of reformation does the Lord want? What kind of reformation pleases God? Well, this closing scene of our passage gives us a three-part answer. First, the reformation that pleases God involves all of God's people. What God is doing in this story, speaking through the words of the book, speaking through the prophet Huldah, cutting to the heart of the king, is not just for the good of Josiah, but for the good of his whole people. God doesn't just want to change Josiah's individual life. He wants to change the life and worship of his whole people. So this reformation includes representatives from all of Judah, all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, both great and small. In Josiah's day, God's people were one nation under one Davidic king. In our day, God's people are one church under one messianic king. So if we see other people in our congregation being led astray, or if we see the church down the street turning aside from God's word, we can't just say to ourselves, oh, well, at least I'm okay with God. What happens to those other people isn't my problem. No, a really godly reformation aims to renew the life of God's whole church. The reformation that pleases God involves all of God's people. Second, the reformation that pleases God follows all of God's word. At the end of uh, chapter 23, verse 2, after assembling all the people, Josiah read in their hearing all the words of the book of the covenant that had been found in the house of the Lord. Josiah knew that, the, that God's people needed to hear every word of this book. The commandments, the testimonies, the blessings, the curses. Every word of this book had been written down so that they could hear it and listen to it and take it to heart. Of course, this is not only true for Judah then, but for Christians today. It's not only true of this book of the law, but of the whole Scripture, Old and New Testament. It was a disaster for Judah when they left the book of the law on the shelf. And it will be a disaster for the church if we leave any part of God's word on the shelf. If we listen to the few bits we like, but forget about the rest and neglect it. And we can test any reform movement in the church in our own day by this standard. Is it based on the whole counsel of scripture? 
or does it leave some books on the shelf? Do its teachers open up God's word to his people, or do they hide it and obscure it? The Reformation that pleases God follows all of God's word. Third, the Reformation that pleases God is a Reformation of the whole heart. In chapter 22, verse 19, God commended Josiah for having a penitent heart. And in 23, verse 3, Josiah led the people in promising to follow the Lord's commandments with all their heart and all their soul. Probably Josiah was thinking of what he had read in Deuteronomy 6, verses 4 to 6. Deuteronomy 6, 4 to 6, here it is. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. Remember the big problem in Jewish religion at that time, the big thing that needed reforming, was that Judah regarded the Lord as just one God among many. They worshipped him a little, but they worshipped him alongside Asherah and Baal and Molech. Maybe they gave the Lord a little slice of their heart, a little bit of their attention and energy and loyalty, but the rest was directed at worshipping these idols. Well, God doesn't accept that. He wants all of you, all of your attention and energy and loyalty and love, all your heart. He calls his people to a life of holiness where every part of life, not just one or two parts, is shaped by love for him. That's why in the next part of 2 Kings 23, the part we didn't read, Josiah goes around the whole country tearing down the Asherah poles and smashing the altars of Baal and abolishing the place of sacrifice to Molech. These outward changes are good and necessary, but these outward changes need to flow from an inward change, from a penitent heart and a recommitment to love God with all our heart and all our being, or they ultimately mean nothing and don't last. So this is what a godly reformation looks like. All of God's people following all of God's word with all of our heart. All of God's people following all of God's word with all of our heart. The church today is not perfect. I don't think that's a surprise statement to anyone. Our denomination, the Anglican Church in North America, is not perfect. Our congregation Christ the King Anglican Church is not perfect. By God's grace, there are things we get right. There are many ways in which we have been and continue to be faithful. God help us for that always to be true. But no doubt there are also parts of God's word that we have forgotten or ignored. And that the Holy Spirit wants to help us rediscover. Perhaps there are corners of our heart that we haven't given over wholly to God. Perhaps there are idols in our heart that the Holy Spirit still needs to topple over. You don't need to be a Luther or a King Josiah to help the church become what God is calling it to be. 
if you only gather with God's people, listen to God's word and take what you hear to heart, you will be participating in God's ongoing great reformation of his church. Amen.